please turn in God's holy word to the letter of 1st Peter 1st Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus Galatia Cappadocia Asia and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Through this letter from an apostle of your Son, your very holy word to your people, may we realize what it means that we are elect exiles in the study of this book, and what it means to be immersed in the salvation of the triune God so that again and again your grace and peace would be multiplied to us in this way. In the strong name of Jesus we pray, amen. If the Bible as a whole is largely unappreciated, and it is, then this is certainly true of the greetings of the New Testament letters. A dear saint who, and let me add, because they're neglected in Scripture as far as our study and appreciation, they're neglected in our practice as well. Uh, a dear saint that was a member here, they've moved away, said whenever they first started coming, there are several things that were weird and alien to them. But one especially that they mentioned really quickly was they began coming around Easter and the, the exchange that they would see happening and, and they didn't know how to respond at first of people coming to them and saying, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that was just alien. Even though they'd grown up in church, they hadn't experienced that. I hope you agree with me. That's a good kind of alien. That's the kind of peculiar that we want more of. There's some of it here, but there's room for growth. We don't desire to grow into a kind of insincere hypocrisy, but we want the language, the, the, the expression, the sentiment, the, the actions of the Bible to become our own. Greetings and blessings in the name of Jesus, in the name of our triune God, are just all too rare. There's nothing wrong with, hey, hello, hi, how are you? Good to see you. Nothing wrong with those kind of expressions. There's just something so right about the saints of God greeting and welcoming and blessing one another in a way that's peculiarly Christian. As we meditate on this greeting, I believe that you'll see that rather than some kind of shallow formality, that such greetings are deeply theological, and an expression of love that we fool ourselves if we think we're being more sincere. 
So who wrote this letter? Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Young people, you may grow up and go to a university. Some of you are in one. And there you might encounter a seemingly an otherwise intelligent professor with many initials beside their name that say that they're a master and a doctor. You'll encounter this instructor who will tell you that Peter didn't write this letter. Well, I don't want that to be the first occasion upon which you hear such nonsense. And I want you to be armed and ready and and not caught off guard whenever it happens. I want you to know what's at stake and what the real issue is whenever you hear something like that. If Peter didn't write this letter, God didn't write this book. If Peter didn't write this letter, then it means either God is incompetent, he just doesn't know, or that he's a liar or that he had no part in this book at all. R.C. Sproul gets to the matter. He says, this is where your view of Scripture virtually controls your interpretation of Scripture. If you think the Bible was errantly produced by authors without the supervision and superintendence of the Holy Spirit and therefore reflects diverse, even contradictory theologies, that gives some license to compromise the internal claims of Scripture. However, if you come to the text already persuaded that it is the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, then God has to say only once that this letter was written by the Apostle Peter. The argument is settled. Now, what you need to see is that the real issue here isn't that scholars don't like the idea of some human author. The real issue is that they don't like the idea of a divine author. Know this, if you want to reject the Bible's claims of itself, you will always find someone in your corner. And you will often find someone that looks and seems very intelligent to help you look and seem very intelligent whenever you do so. But the issue isn't that Bible people are naive. The issue is that man, as a totality, is arrogant. Why do some scholars reject Peter's authorship? At least, what are the reasons they put forward? One, well, this is some of the finest Greek that we see in the New Testament, indeed. And Peter, as an uneducated fisherman, could not have written such. Do you see the arrogance? The educated tell us that only the educated could write so well. Some of the finest literature in history has been written by persons of little formal education. Further, look at Peter's speeches throughout the book of Acts. Are they not striking in their expression? And then realize this, whenever the intelligentsia of Israel perceived that Peter and John were uneducated common men, Acts 4.13, what they were expressing was, these men didn't go to our schools. These aren't Oxford men. Something of that is the idea. Second, they look at this letter and they say, well, the, the situation, the, the, the events of the letter, the, the contents of it reflect a later period, and specifically they're speaking in reference to the suffering, the persecution that are dealt with in this book. And they, they say that there's no widespread official persecution of the church until later, long after Peter's been dead, most certainly dead. That's true. Peter never claims that the persecution that's happening in this book was a state-sponsored one. Things don't have to be empire-sponsored to be empire or regionally wide. 
So do you see the arrogance of these scholars who think that they can know the situation on the ground, though they are 2,000 years removed from it and in a totally different culture than one who purports to be a witness on the ground? Third, they say that 1 Peter is too like Paul. Now, do you realize how they're trying to play it both ways? If Peter and Paul are alike, they say, oh, this can't be a divinely inspired book. It's, it's, it's fabricated. And if Peter and Paul are different, they, oh, this can't be a divinely inspired book. They, uh, they, they, uh, they want it both ways. Well, realize this. They're both apostles of the same Christ with the same message from that Christ. There are two human authors, but there's one divine author. And finally, they say that Peter, as an apostle to the Jews, was overstepping his jurisdiction. <laughs> Who was the first apostle to preach the gospel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles? Peter. And then Paul, who is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, read through the book of Acts, and who do we see him preaching to again and again first? The Jews. These are generalizations. Again, the scholar in arrogance presumes to tell an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ what he can or cannot do. Peter wrote this letter, and he wrote it as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not some dead Lord, but the risen and reigning Christ, who Peter says in 3.22, has gone into heaven as at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. It's this Christ that Peter speaks for. You, the real issue is not that you have to deal with Peter here, it's that you have to deal with Christ. This is not a letter that you stand over, this is a letter that stands over you. Now to whom did Peter write this letter? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing it to exiles in a foreign land, what is today modern-day Turkey. They are exiles of the dispersion. Now that word there is a, is a Greek word that some of you may be familiar with, the diaspora, the dispersion. And it can be used as a technical term to refer to the Jews that were scattered throughout the world at that time. It's clearly used this way a couple of times in the New Testament. For example, John 7.35, the Jews ask, does he, does Jesus intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? Well, is that the way that Peter uses the term here? Is that his intent? Is that the only way that that term can be used? Unfortunately, the ESV, by capitalizing dispersion, leads you to think that this must be used in that technical sense, the Jews of the dispersion. Now, that may, this may seem like a small thing. Is he writing to ethnic Jews, or is he writing to Gentile Christians, or a mixed audience? This may seem like a small thing. But it has radical implications for how you understand the letter and the implications of it. The question here is which Zion is being referenced to as home? Is this concerning the heavenly Jerusalem or the earthly Jerusalem of which this audience is an exile in relation to? Well, I believe that it's clear from the letter itself that it's, it's not being distant from some earthly Jerusalem that causes these people to be referred to as exiles, but it's being absent from their home, the heavenly Jerusalem, that causes them to be regarded as sojourners and strangers and aliens. Now, some do believe that this letter, written by 
Peter, who Paul says was entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, Galatians 2.7, is addressed to the Jews of the diaspora, who are Christians. And they'll point to a couple of references to the Gentiles in this letter to help confirm that theory. So, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Peter says, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not want to join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, only a cursory glance at that reference could make one think that he's writing to ethnic Jews in contrast with the Gentiles. Because notice that the Gentiles are surprised whenever these Christians don't join them in the same kind of immorality. Would Gentiles be surprised if an ethnic Jew didn't want to join them in such things? Not at all. Why then refer to them as Gentiles? I think the next reference will make it clear. Earlier, in 2, 9 through 12, Peter writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Once you weren't the people of God. These are Gentiles. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You notice the contrast between them and the Gentiles is an ethical one, not an ethnic one, an ethical one. And you go back to chapter 2 and verse 7, right before this, and it's clear that the contrast is between believers and unbelievers. Even if this is written to the Jews, what Peter is saying here is not true of them regarding their ethnicity. It's not regarding their physical birth that any of these things would be true of them, but only regarding their spiritual birth. Paul is speaking of Christians, a mixed audience, I don't doubt, but primarily Gentiles. And he's speaking of them in terms long associated with ethnic Israel, Old Testament Israel as God's chosen and God's elect. And in this way, it is as citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem that they are exiles and sojourners and strangers and aliens, not because of their physical birth, but because of their spiritual birth. The Gentiles are tied to this world that is fading, while the saints are tied to the heavenly Jerusalem that is to come. So the apostle is speaking of the church in terms long associated with Israel. And know that whenever you do this, because of how dispensational theology has so entrenched itself in the church in the past 150 years, and that's as old as dispensational theology gets, But because of the way it's so entrenched itself in the church, you're going to be accused of replacement theology, which says that the church replaced Israel. And that's that's thrown out as a slander. Oh, you believe in replacement theology. Well, I don't like such language because I don't think it's glorious enough. We don't believe that the church replaced Israel. We believe that Israel grew up into the church. We believe that the church is the fulfillment of all that was anticipated in Israel. What I see in the Scriptures is that 
Something like the way that uh, Jesus relates to David is the way that the church relates to Israel. Jesus doesn't replace David. He's the fulfillment and the, 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 the expectation. Uh, he's all that was anticipated in David. And something like that is true with the church in Israel. The church isn't something other than Israel. She's the true people of God, the true Israel, the bride of Christ, the people of God come into fuller glory and expression. You can see that right here in Peter, but let's look at a few other texts that make this abundantly clear. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? Those who believe. Romans 2, 28 through 29. Paul says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Now finally, here's my trump card. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, spells out the implications of what this language, whenever it's applied to Gentiles, means. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh... Your Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were. So remember at one time, remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. At one time you were separated from Christ, at one time you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. At one time, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. What covenants? The ones in the Old Testament. At one time, you were. Not anymore. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now, that's who you were. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. You see how important it is that you not skip over who this letter is addressed to and the implications of it? Ethnic Gentiles are spoken of as spiritual Jews and thus exiles from the heavenly Zion. This letter has a lot to say about living as exiles and strangers and aliens. And the quotations from chapters 2 and 4 make that clear already. Being in exile means we're different. And being different means we'll suffer persecution, suffering. Being in exile means holiness in this life, a different kind of living, which means persecution. The, the suffering and persecution that First Peter has in mind are not suffering because of your ethnicity and being distanced from some home called Jerusalem, located in Palestine. The suffering and persecution that Peter has in mind come because you're in exile, because you're, you're tied to the world that is to come. Because you're a citizen of heaven, and you're different, and you stand out from this world that's fading and passing away. Saint, if you're truly a saint, you are not at home here. And the attitude of this world should be, you're not from around here, are you? You should be distinct, different, an exile, an alien. You should feel uneasy in this world. And this world should feel uneasy around you. How comfortable 
are you? How foreign does this world feel to you? This world that you were once a part of, but because of the new birth, it doesn't, doesn't capture your identity anymore. Are you looked upon as a foreigner in this world? And if not, realize this, just as not all ethnic Jews were true Jews, so not all cultural Christians are Christians. Do you sense that God has done something to you such that you can say with Paul, I am crucified to this world and this world to me? If so, what is it that God has done in you? If that, if that sense of I am an alien, I'm not part of this world, if that's in you if, you, if you get that, then what did God do to make that such? To those who are elect exiles. Election isn't something that the biblical authors bury in the back of their books only after having made abundant qualifications. Peter leads with it. And with this, Peter is again using terms long associated with Israel as true of the church. You have the same truth in 2 and verse 9. They are a chosen people. If you want to be faithful to the Bible, you can't elect to not deal with election. You may not choose to not deal with God's choosing. It's there. Michael Horton writes, we can talk about grace, sing about grace, preach about grace, just as long as we do not get too close to it. Election is too close. When we give in to election, we finally give up on, our, in, uh, on ourselves in the matter of salvation. What made you an exile? The Bible's answer is election. Redefine that or ignore it, and this is the only answer you have left. Me. Out of the mass of humanity, the reason why I'm saved and you're not is me. Because I made a decision, and you didn't. And it doesn't have anything to do with God. It has everything to do with me. And while it may not look like boasting, because you're going to paint it in terms of humility, contriteness. But where do you put the origin for all of that? Because those are true virtues. Those are biblical virtues. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. But you say... They come from my own heart before God had any saving work in me. You have to deal with election, and so most do it by redefining it. And they redefine it such that it means nothing. They undefine it. Their definition is an undefinition. And they do so by abusing a word that soon follows in our text according to the foreknowledge. Ah, that'll work. So you have in verse 2 these three prepositional phrases that are adjective phrases modifying elect exiles. They are elect exiles. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. One, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Two, and three, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. And so for those who want to undefine it, they say simply that the foreknowledge of God involved that God foreknew, He looked down through the corridors of time, and He foreknew those who would choose Him, and then He chose them. This is referred to as conditional election. Now, such, a, such a proposal, in my mind, solves no problem, offers nothing good, and robs you of something beautiful. You see how such a view admits too much to begin with. 
It admits that the future events, because they are foreknown, are unchangeable. The future's set. It's established. And what this means is that out of all the possible worlds that God has chosen, out of all the possible worlds that God could have chose to make, excuse me, out of all the possible worlds He could have made, He chose this one, in which He knew these persons would believe and those persons would not. So you're, all, you're, you're left with God being sovereign over everything because He chose this world where He knew these would believe and those would not. But you see what's happened? The grace of God does it not feel deistic and removed. It's not touching you personally. It's not as if God is working and moving in the world. What happens is He's almost deistic. He just knows where it's going to go and winds it up and lets it loose. His grace doesn't reach down and grip you. But clearly, the clear definition of election is destroyed by this. If God chooses based upon our choice, God hasn't chose. James Montgomery Boyce says such a definition destroys the very meaning of the word, of course, for such election is really not election at all. It actually means that men and women elect themselves, and God is reduced to a bystander who responds to their free choice. Logically and causally, even if not chronologically, God's choice follows man's choice. I don't see any way to square this with Jesus' words. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Say there's a henpecked, henpecked husband, and the elders are encouraging him to take godly, loving leadership. And so he decides to start small. Good idea. And he's going to choose where they're going to eat on their next date night. And as he opens the car door for her and she steps in, he says, I choose, boldly declares, I choose to eat wherever you choose. (laughs) He shouldn't report to the elders that Sunday, I chose where we ate for dinner. Foreknowledge can mean something like knowing ahead of time. Indeed, God does know things ahead of time. It can mean that, but is that all it can mean? Is that what it means here? Here you have this context that we've already seen as rich in all this terminology gleaned from the Old Testament. Perhaps we should go to the Bible to get our definitions rather than reading our definitions into the Bible. While for no isn't used in the Old Testament, the word no is quite often. Amos 3.2, God says of Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Did God have mental cognizance of everyone on the earth? Absolutely. But He says to Israel, You only have I known. What's the idea? You only am I in covenant relationship with. You only do I know in this kind of way, this special relationship. No one else. You only. He set his love upon them. Is there any place where we see the same kind of language in the New Testament? Matthew chapter 7. You remember many will come to Jesus on the last day bragging of all they did in his name. And he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, did he know them? Well, of course he had mental awareness of them. He was their creator. He was their Lord. What does he mean? I was never in covenant relationship with you. Never. On the flip side, John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. What's the implication? 
My covenant love abides on them. The meaning of no in all these instances you see, these covenant terms, these, these salvific terms, the, instant, the, the meaning clearly in all of them is not that he has mental awareness of them. That's assumed. But the meaning is that he set his covenant love upon them so that they're in relationship. So what does it mean that God foreknew? It means that before you were able ever, if you're a saint, before you were ever capable of relating to God, he related to you. He set his covenant love upon you. And it's according to that that he then elected you to salvation. Now further consider this. Every time you see the, this terminology of foreknow or foreknowledge in the New Testament, it's never said that God foreknew that someone would believe that some would believe and others would not. It's never used that someone that he foreknew acts of people. That's true. God knows all these things. But that's not, what's, that's not how the terminology is used in the New Testament. You're never, know, never told that God foreknew that you would believe. What you're told is that God foreknew you. Not that He foreknew acts, but that He foreknew persons. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge, election, predestination, these all are intertwined. Election says he chose you before the foundation of the world. Foreknowledge says he set his covenant love on you before the foundation of the world. And predestination says he predetermined your destiny before the foundation of the world. This is the most foundational root of your salvation and why it is that you are in exile. The most foundational root of your salvation is not your believing at some point in the future so that it determine what God did in the past. The most foundational root of your salvation is that God in eternity past chose you so that you would believe in the future. In, this, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter declared this concerning Christ, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23. Jesus was delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge. The foreknowledge of God is not something that passively responds. It's something that actively determines. Why was Jesus put on that cross? Because of God's foreknowledge. It actively did things. Second, You are an elect exile in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, there are two kinds of sanctification that we see in the Scriptures. We call them progressive sanctification and positional sanctification. Progressive sanctification refers to your ongoing growth and holiness. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says to them, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. This This is the predominant way that we use this terminology of sanctification, growing in holiness. That's not the predominant way that the New Testament uses the word. It does use it that way, but it's not the predominant way. Positional sanctification uh, has more hits in the New Testament. And that's what is the sense of texts like 1 Corinthians 6.11, where Paul tells the Corinthians, you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see how sanctification is put alongside of justification and washing as something that's decisively, definitively happened in our past. On the moment, whenever you are born again and and conversion, in that moment, you are sanctified, you're set apart. You see how this relates to being an elect exile? You're an exile 
because you've been set apart by the Spirit. And here's where you reside, in Christ. So which one of the two is it here, though, in the sanctification of the Spirit? I think it's positional for a few reasons. One, there are only a couple of phrases here that could refer to progressive sanctification. Sanctification in the Spirit, obedience to Christ. But all the description could be true of our regeneration, our new birth, our conversion. All of them can be used to refer to that instance. Following that, it seems odd to me to sandwich talk of our progressive sanctification with instances that refer to our new birth and conversion. That you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, that refers to to your salvation in the whole sense, and then to end it all with sprinkling with His blood to return back to that decisive moment of our salvation. Third, after this greeting, know that, see that Paul goes on to speak of their being born again in verse 3. He's caused us to be born again. Like that's the, you get the sense that that's what's predominating Peter's thought at this point. Positional sanctification, although progressive does as well, but positional sanctification really explains why at root they are at exiles. Progressive makes them look more and more like exiles. But it's positional sanctification that speaks to the very fact of them being exiles. Third, they are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, what's meant by obedience here? I've already set forth the argument that all of this is speaking about their rebirth and their conversion, what lies behind it and the very occurrence of it. Well, how can we understand obedience to Jesus Christ in terms of our conversion and salvation? That sounds like uh, something that would follow thereafter. Well, take a walk through Romans with me, and I'm just going to read several texts. I'll try not to comment too much, and I want to see if you draw the same conclusions. Romans 1.5, through whom, it's, that's Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, speaking of himself as an apostle, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations. Chapter 10, verse 16 of Romans. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Romans 15, 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Finally, Romans 16, 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has now been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. So here's this letter to the Romans that so often says that faith is that instrumental means by which you receive justification. That based upon faith, God declares you righteous with the imputed righteousness of Christ. This letter that so emphasizes doesn't hesitate to again and again call that very obedience, that very faith, obedience. And it says that that obedience was brought forth by the word of God. It's something that God did in us. In the gospel, a summons, a command rings out from God, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the proper response of obedience to that command and summons is faith. And that faith is a 
miracle that happens through the Word of God as it's preached. You are elect for that obedience. You are not elect because you believed. You believe because you're elect. You are an elect exile for this obedience. And sinner, if you're aware, I'm a Gentile. I'm an, I, I am a stranger to the covenants of promise. Not a stranger to this world that's dying and fading away and damned, but a stranger to God's covenant love. If you recognize you are condemned, you're not called upon to figure out whether or not you're elect. The summons of God that you are to obey right now is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. But know this, if you do, it's because God set His covenant love upon you and chose you before the foundation of the world. And He brought about that new birth by the proclaimed word. Finally, we are elect exiles elect. You are chosen for sprinkling with His blood. If you're sprinkled with His blood, why are you so? Because the Father chose to do so. And again, this is covenant terminology drawn from the Old Testament. You go to Exodus 24 and there's this covenant ceremony, this covenant ratification. And Moses, after reading the words of the covenant, has the people respond with this vow, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And then he takes the blood and he throws it on the people saying, Behold the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. And Hebrews picks up on this saying, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And what does Hebrews go on to unfold but this, that that was all a shadow and a copy and it reached its fulfillment in Christ. All that old covenant stuff reached its fulfillment in Christ. It's not alien to you. You're alien because of it. Later, he goes on to unfold the author of Hebrews. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel as applied spoke condemnation, but the sprinkled blood of Christ speaks to our salvation. You are chosen by God according to His foreknowledge, that is, His setting His love upon you, to have the blood of the covenant sprinkled upon you so that you would be a resident of the heavenly Jerusalem, the Zion that is above a citizen of heaven. And did you see that the, the salvation that you're immersed in from eternity past, did you see that the salvation was a Trinitarian salvation? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ, the Trinity may be foreign to your mind. But know this, it's not foreign to your experience. 
whenever you're saved, you're immersed into the very life of the Trinity. You have been. Fred Sanders writes, The gospel is the Trinity, and the Trinity is the gospel. Christian salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity, and brings us home to the Trinity. Now, having reflected on the first part of this greeting, do you see how what might be taken as a fairly standard blessing takes on much greater significance? Here are these elect exiles suffering for their faith. And Peter says to them, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And do you see how considering the amazing grace of God that's come upon them to this point that was established in eternity past as the Father chose them, set His covenant love upon them, that then the Spirit, because of this, sanctified them such that they believed and were sprinkled with His blood. Do you see how considering this amazing grace would give them confidence and peace? to live out their pilgrimage until they reach the heavenly Zion. And you see how though they're not comfortable in this world. They're aliens and strangers. They can have peace in it. As Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, if such language, grace and peace be multiplied with you, to you, if such greetings seem alien and foreign to you, May I submit that the shallowness is not due to the biblical authors or to some kind of formal hypocrisy, but the shallowness is our own. It's because we don't understand how radical the salvation of our triune God is and how it's made us elect exiles that we don't long to hear grace and peace be multiplied to you that we don't exchange that kind of blessing on others. We don't realize our fellow brothers and sisters, you're walking this incredibly hard pilgrimage through this foreign land. What an act and expression of love it is for me to say to you, grace and peace be multiplied as you walk this path. If you really knew what it meant to be an elect exile, you would long for those words. You would express those words. Elect exiles, know this. That the stunning grace of our triune God that determined our salvation in eternity past in which you entered at a point in time whenever the works of Christ were applied to you by, by the Spirit that that same grace will be multiplied on you until it gets you all the way home. So dear saints, with this I take Peter's greeting and use it as the benediction to this sermon. Elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Holy Father, I simply ask in the strong name of Jesus, may this be so. All glory be to you.
Amen.